0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. James Darnell today in studio with us. A look at Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. More information, by the way, on the book at SavingTheSaved.com. That's SavingTheSaved.com. We were talking about this paradigm shift that we've seen take place in the church today. But I'm curious, as we sort of take the the yardstick to the moral health of America today, as we take the patient's temperature, so to speak, we we see that we're in this moral (sighs) quagmire at at, at many levels. Um, We are victims of moral uh, relativism. Is this the product of the slippery slope of theological relativism that has said it's not so much about preaching the exclusive truth of the claims of Christ, but rather the inclusive approach? Because after all, we want people to feel good about themselves because if they don't feel good about themselves, mm-hmm. they won't show up to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, you're right. And I, and I also think that it has a, um, uh, there's, within inside that, kind of a secret uh, type of uh, movement to eliminate words like sin and um, uh, words like rebellion and disobedience and uh, what we would call the old orthodox kind of way of looking
1: at our faith. Yeah, when's the last time a preacher from the pulpit would a term like atonement? There you go. Or propitiation? That's right. These, these words are being uh, set aside
2: and, uh, interestingly enough, not being replaced the, the words now are love 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 forgive forgive and forgive and uh be inclusive and and, and love your neighbor as yourself so uh, things like uh, the, the for example the the, the 10 commandments uh, are not even looked at anymore uh, and really half of those commandments you know are about the love that Jesus uh prescribed for us, and the other half are, are about the love that God has for us. And yet, at the same time, when Jesus answered that question for the Pharisees, what, 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 the, he, he, he said to them, look, the commandments are all wrapped up in just two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. What that was was a combination of all Ten of the commandments that Moses uh, had written down from God. And he brought that all together. The Pharisees didn't catch it. They weren't, they, 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 didn't quite understand what he was trying to say. But the interesting thing is, as he went on to teach his disciples, and as he became the head of our church today, and Paul began to unwrap some of Jesus' teachings, what we find out is, is that it's important that a person knows what they're repenting from, where they're coming from, why they are sinful, why we were created the way we were created and what happened to us at the very beginning. And as they follow that through the scripture, they see that they all the scripture from Genesis 1 the whole way through to Revelation is all about Christ. It's all about him, his plan of repentance, and it's about the, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring us back into a relationship with Him. And what the church has decided to do today is to say, look, if you want to be a Christian, fine. Some churches even just pray this prayer right after me. And you say, the little prayer, congratulations, you're a champion, you're in. And then they move forward with their agenda, their values, their plan, their idea, in order for us to make the contribution. And I can't overestimate that. The whole issue here is, is what is it that we have to offer? And w- when we do that, what we do is we say, it's not about Jesus anymore. He's done what he's going to do. It's about us and what we can offer. And what we can do. That's why you see some of the major pastors uh, that are out there today uh, in swallowing the whole idea of universalism and some of the other concepts that are going on because they, they actually believe that they can make a contribution
1: that could perhaps even change God's mind. But if our central focus is not on man's sinful fallen condition, having offended a holy Righteous God Mm -hmm. and the need for shed blood for remission of sin. For reconciliation unto God that leads to relationship, if that fails to be the central focus, then doesn't this become much like simply performance-based religion, its behavior modification, and in which case, what sets us apart from any other cult out there that does the same thing? There are plenty of cults out there that teach, hey, don't beat your wife, it's not good to drink and smoke, take get her better care of your bodies, pay your taxes on time, I mean, that's all performance-based.
2: Mm-hmm. But what it does is is uh, it's performance-based, and it is behavior modification, and um, it, it, it's a way of, I don't know how to say it other than to say it's a way of bringing man to a level where he feels being made in the image of God, he now has the right to control his life and the way things Get done. So Just it's search. no longer
1: about servitude to the Lord, but rather the roles are flipped. Suddenly now God becomes a a cosmic bellhop who is at our disposal to meet our every whim, Mm -hmm. make sure that we are fully satisfied in life so that if we're not as healthy as we want to be, wealthy as we want to be, we just go and say, hey God, what's the deal here? Aren't I supposed to be abundantly blessed? One major preacher, I won't name any names, but he's based in Houston, Texas, (laughs) Announced recently from the pulpit that the core purpose of Christ's coming was to give us abundant life.
2: Well, there you go. That's but a that per- isn't what the Bible teaches. No, but that's a perfect example of where man makes his contribution. He has a given us abundant life. We we what Jesus tries to teach his disciples, and then his disciples uh, passed on, not only to the Jews, but also Paul, uh, being a Jew, passed on to the Gentiles, was the whole idea of character. And that's where that comes from. It comes from Jesus' teaching on character. And what Jesus said is, yes, there's a blessing that goes with a character. But what we have done is we've decided not to take the biblical interpretation of what that really is. What we've decided to do was redefine it. So if you feel good, if you are experiencing a, a, a good religious moment, if you are worshiping and you are happy, if you are uh, financially blessed and whatever, then you're doing things right. If you're not within that abundant living, which is not what that means at all in Scripture, but if you're not within that abundant living, then what you've done is is uh, you need to give more, you need to... Uh, perhaps do more good deeds. You need to um, uh, fellowship more in a way that will help you to grow up and mature as a Christian and they would say, function in the kingdom of God more uh, by your tithes
1: and by your offerings and by your works. Well, what's the difference between that then and uh, the approach of of creating an industry as opposed to building God's kingdom? That's
2: exactly what they've done. They've built a church industry. And that's what these these leadership conferences that pastors are going to today, the, the the majority of them are all about you becoming a leader that can lead your flock to a new level, a higher level of responsibility and accountability for who you are. And they never talk about who you are in Christ. It's who you are, and what
1: you have to offer each other, and what you have to offer God. How you see yourself, how others see you, as opposed to how God sees you. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with how God sees. It's it's almost like it's passe.
2: You know, Jesus went to the cross. He died for your sins. Wasn't that wonderful? You know, he gave you eternal life. That's even nicer. But now... Culture has changed. Uh, um, we're more sophisticated now. Uh, science is our, our uh, is our god, and what we need to do now is we need to understand how we can make our contribution how we can do it without God. That's why we we spend a lot of time at the very beginning of Saving the Saved uh, talking about what are the laws and the beliefs of a secular society that knows that the way they can get done what they want done is to compromise the church. And uh, second of all, uh, knows that if they take the church and get it compromised, they can then... Have the end result, which is a, a godless nation. And that godless nation and a compromised church allows uh, a new uh, way of governing, uh, not only globally, but in America, but also in a person's personal life. The thing we're missing here is, and, and that they're missing, is this is not a, um, a collective salvation approach. Uh, God is looking at us individually. And each person has to be accountable to God for who they are and what their life, how they've lived their life and what their life is all about. And, and what the church is doing now is making it more of a collective salvation. So that, you know, if we're doing a lot of good things together and if we're thinking the right things and if we're imagining what could happen. Uh, a lot of books out today. Imagine this. Imagine that. Imagine heaven. Imagine hell. I mean, you know, what's that all about? What that's about is helping people to let loose of the scriptural understanding of things and help them to use who they are to try to determine what they want to
1: experience of a relationship with their God. So the Bible then goes from having been foundational to the theological underpinnings of the church, mm-hmm. to a companion reference guide. It's it's a side manual. It's uh, yeah. some interesting notes that we can quote from. That perhaps has a nice poetic flow to it. Let's get up and recite a passage or two out of the Book of Psalms that makes us all feel good. Yes. But let's not dare use that yeah. as the foundational underpinning yeah. of our faith.
2: And the Bible is no longer uh, in in many uh, thinking of many pastors and churches across America, which Barna has made very clear. In his studies that over 51% of them
1: uh, do not hold a, a biblical world view. 57% of evangelicals believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. So.
2: Absolutely. So there you go. That gives you an idea of what's happening and how powerful it is and how it's really affecting what's going on in the life of a, a Christian today. There's no wonder why people out there are confused. It's no wonder why they go to their church and when you, we tell them to be salt and light, they're saying, oh, well, my pastor wouldn't have that. Uh, we're in the middle of a dream and putting together our new core values and and uh, uh, doing our leadership like they do at, uh, at um, you know, uh, one of the major companies, Chevron or something. That That's what the church is all about. It is not. It's, it's become a community center To be able to deal with issues in the local community, but to deal with them with the very best knowledge that man has to offer, and to put that little tag on you that says Christian. And when that tag Christian is there, even though they're being persecuted for it now, they believe that over a period of time that will eventually melt away because the new definition of what a Christian is will not include an infallible, inerrant scripture it will not include um, a savior that has brought us from sin to salvation. It will not include any kind of living style, our sanctified life, our holiness, or whatever. We will be moral in terms of what morality is
1: plurality and morality is accepted within our society. James Darnell, a look at Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. The book available on the web and more information at savingthesaved.com That's savingthesaved.com And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. James Darnell with us today. A look at his new book, Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. More information available on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. You made reference to this moral morass that we currently find ourselves in, and there seems to be an interesting shift that has taken place here, where traditionally, as the church looked at the culture, the desire was to impact the culture and change the culture. But as you're suggesting, it seems today as if more of our approach seems to be pacifying the culture, and embracing the culture. Sort of this, well, if you can't beat them, join them approach.
2: Yes. That's exactly why we put together this company called Netaffirm. Because Netaffirm ha- is, is a word that describes bringing people together under the scriptures. What, what is happening in the church is they're bringing people together under the church. Now, the interesting thing about that is is that, yes, a pastor is willing to say, or a church leader is willing to say, um, I believe that Christ is the foundation of the church, or or, or Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but that's as far as they take it. Uh, What they do now is they take it and they say, yes, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but we are asked to imagine what that church can be like. In our society, and therefore, by embracing society, um, let me give you an example. Um, you know, I, I I pastored for you know uh, many 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 years, uh, but uh, now I enjoy just talking to pastors and, and finding out what they're going on. I had a pastor just a few days ago say this to me: um, I had a conversation with a person who's living a um, a lifestyle that is not in agreement with Scripture or with the teachings of Christ. And that person argued with this pastor for an hour that they are a Christian, that they are committed to Christ, that Christ died on the cross for them, and they have a alternative lifestyle that Christ has accepted because it's part of who they are and what their life is all about. And therefore, uh, there is not this exclusiveness that, that the older, orthodox uh, religion of America uh, tries to push on people or are used to make people feel bad about themselves. What they're doing now is, is they feel that the church needs to be changed it needs to get with the culture it needs to to come up to a level where god is is seeing people and forgiving them and loving them and accepting them regardless of how they're living their life uh but it, more than that regardless of how they feel about growing in their relationship to god and and functioning in the kingdom the Scripture makes it very clear that our job is to be discipled so that we can disciples others into the kingdom, both evangelistically and through discipleship, so that we grow in our personal faith. That's not the goal of the church anymore. Matter of fact, the, uh, there's a subtitle to this book. It says, How the Church's Greatest mission Led to the Post-Christian America. The greatest mission is discipleship. And when I go places to talk about discipleship, they look at me like,
1: uh, "What do you mean?" Or what is or discipleship? Perhaps they ponder and say, "Oh, you mean membership class?" Uh, oh, yeah, we know what that is. Membership class. They have no idea
2: that the, the church today, when you talk about discipleship, except, and of course, this is not exclusive with every church. Are, are you know inclusive of all churches? Uh, uh, there are many good churches out there, and many pastors with great hearts doing the right thing. And I want to say that up front, but at the same time, it's overpowering. What is going on in our country with this idea that words like discipleship, sin, Jesus Christ, infallibility of the
1: scriptures, are all out the door. Now, let's be cautious about something here. We have been down this path before. Paul's warnings to the church at Corinth. (laughs) We had the Reformation, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. What is different about the spiritual crossroads that we're at today, um, where we see the the church finding itself knowingly or perhaps unknowingly in this position. The big omission as you speak to is this lack of biblical discipleship. So then it begs the ultimate key foundational question. We're at this crossroads again today. What do we do to bring the church back on track so that it comes back in alignment with not some church growth seminars, I notion of what the church looks like, but rather with what God says he wants the church to look like. Yeah,
2: let's just focus that just a little bit more because you're you're right, you're on something that's critical uh, to where we're going. And that is, if you as a Christian are waiting for the church and the pastor to do this right, it may never happen. Uh, yes, there are some churches that are really excited and want to do it right and want to stand up against the culture and want to uh, carry the word forward. But what can you do if, if this is happening where you are and you see these words being espoused from the pulpit and you see the kinds of things that are going on in the church and you know uh, that there's something wrong and the more of your faith, which you know is spiritual growth, you're just not getting there. It's not coming to you. So what do you do? Here's, here is what I believe are the three alternatives. There may be others. But first of all, you can stay where you are and try and be salt and light. And um, as, as Einstein would say, good luck. <laughs> because that's not the facts that are going to change the, the environment. It, you, you, you do, there's no way that, that you alone as salt and light in a community that has bought in to this pluralistic worldview is, is going to be able to make a, a, a great significance there, a change. But I'm not saying you can't be salt and light there, but I'm saying that to, to make the church change, that's just not going to happen. The institutional church is strong in this direction. The second thing is that you find a church where they are discipling. And you can leave and you can go to that church and you can say, look, I want to go deeper in my faith. And I know that's a dirty word some places. So this is what we're talking about. Then there's a third alternative. You can find other Christians who believe what you believe and know that there's something more and you can get them together. I call it the rise of the fellowship. It's the last chapter in the book. And the rise of the fellowship says basically this, that you, you are in a place in your life. There is hope for the church, and, and there are many churches that are going to change. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But the, the church itself, as a community institution, has an agenda. And that agenda has been set by maybe conferences, denominations, by pastors, by leaders, uh, by conferences, uh, that kind of thing. That agenda is not going to change. What's going to have to happen is the people are going to have to make the changes. You pull us
1: essentially back to the model of what the first century church looked like. Right. That's exactly where we're going. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were not about to change.
2: Uh You got it.
1: But the people said, we've seen him. We've experienced him. We've walked in fellowship with him. Mm -hmm. We wish to be disciples of his.
2: Yep. Exactly. What I did in this chapter, as chapter 12, and and, uh, you can get this thing and read it for yourself. It's just fascinating. I went back to 1979 when I was in in a particular pastor. And I talked about the, the pressures of the denomination and the organization on me as a pastor to do what they wanted done. And uh, even though you have some autonomy in the church, perhaps you started the church in your garage or in your home and all the rest of it, if you're inclusively pulling in the community with the hopes that somehow they'll be evangelized by sitting under your message, um, that is no longer, how do I say this nicely? It's, it's, It's just something that doesn't happen. What happens today is the church... When they bring people in or allow people to come in with certain feelings like, I need to have more abundance in my life. I, I, I have financial and physical needs. I have this, and God needs to supply these for me. When those kind of people are attending the church, they're not interested in what Jesus did on the cross. What they're interested in is what God can do for me now. And, and that's what it's all about. And if you can't do it at that church, they may find it comfortable enough to get up and leave and go somewhere else. So what I did was I shared how I did this. I started with the youth, since I was not allowed to do it with the, <laughs> the adults. And what I did was I got them into fellowships. Not a church, not a Bible study, not a small group, not a, a lifelong learning organization. But what I got them into was a simple fellowship and what we did is we talked about the genuineness of a relationship with Jesus Christ, what that looks like, and then all the things that Christ has done for me, who am I
1: in Christ? So you're essentially fostering an environment where true discipleship can take place. That's correct. And what happened was that youth group in that over 2,000-member
2: church of, of 25 young people, 25 Three years later were 375 kids. And they were junior high and senior high coming together. Why? I wasn't going out in street corners preaching. I wasn't preaching from the pulpit. I was the youth director. What was I doing? What I was doing is I was building in Christ into their life. And I was showing them how to be a disciple. I was teaching them character, holiness, righteousness, The fact that Jesus said, be ye perfect, as the Father in heaven is perfect. It is possible for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, to do a lot of wonderful, great things that can transform not only our lives, but the lives of others around us. And then you get phone calls 30 years later from a young woman who is now married to a pastor and says, you know, Pastor, I I never told you this, but... You know, I I grew up without a father, and my fellowship became my father. You were like a father to us. And I felt, how interesting. I had no idea. I didn't know that about her and her life and her family. But the fellowship became an organization that helped her to see Christ in her life and to grow in that relationship. They were accountable to each other, and they learned to grow. So Some pastors uh, would be happy to have 375 uh, people just in a church. And these were youth that grew from a very small core. And that same principle that Paul used in developing the churches in the Scripture, which is what Chapter 8 is all about, Paul and how he did it, can be applied today and can be applied today through starting small fellowships in the church and starting small fellowships outside the church. Those same kind of things. The the plan of Christ for our personal life and for the church is not to do it our way. He has a way. And when we get into that way and do it his way, great things happen. And they happen in the lives of people, and people are blessed. And if they understand anything about Jesus' teaching about character, you you want to be blessed financially, you want to be blessed uh, spiritually and, and with healing and all the other kinds of things. Once you've got an understanding of how those things work. They're all the Beatitudes. They're not the be happy attitudes. They're not the the, the the attitudes that make you feel good about yourself. They're not the attitudes that give you abundant life. That's not their life. They're the attitudes that help you to learn how to depend on Christ for your life, and w- how you react to that when people uh, persecute you, and when you have to suffer for that, and Christ rewards you for that. And so, these are the kind of things that the church can do now. You're asking, what can we do? This is what we can do. If you're lucky, you get a pastor like the one I spoke to you about uh, earlier out in Idaho who um, has figured out uh, Jim uh, uh, Putman who is uh, who uh, wrote a book called Real Life Discipleship and has transitioned his entire church into a real life ministry. Uh, it, Being able to do everything that the church does
1: at being a mission of discipleship. Calling the church back to its first love. Calling the church back to teaching true disciples. Mm -hmm. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. Its author has been my guest on this edition of Lifeline, James Darnell. More information on the book, by the way, simply go to the web. It's savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You've probably heard the news. The number of Americans living below the poverty line is now at its highest level in some 50 years. That, according to a recent report released by the U.S. Census Bureau, finds that more than 46 million people in the United States um, have... uh, qualified for that uh, un- uh, dubious position of being under the poverty level. The New figures are the third increase in three years and nearly 1% increase from 2009. The federal government also says that median incomes in the United States fell over 2% last year. The U.S. apparently has one of the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations. But I thought, you know, when we talk about poverty and the poverty level, uh, what exactly does that mean? How do we define all of this, and when the Census Bureau says that America has the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations... Uh, that's got to beg a question for definition, too. Well, with some insights, we brought in an expert. Robert Rector is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is considered one of the leading national authorities on the topic of the United States welfare system and poverty, and um, has been recently dubbed the intellectual godfather of welfare reform by National Review editor Rich Lowry. And, uh, Mr. Rector, great to have you on the program tonight.
3: Well, thank you for having me on your show. Let's begin with some
1: basic definitions. You know, when, when I hear the word poverty, I I have a vision in my mind, Robert, of similar to what uh, folks went through during the Great Depression. You know, the the Dust Bowl people of Oklahoma making their way with all this stuff strapped in the side of their Model A into the state of California, literally had no money, no resources, no food, no nothing. When we talk about poverty in America today is the picture that I just painted Painted an accurate one?
3: No, but the picture that you have is is what the average person has in mind when they hear uh, the government say they're are forty six million poor people. They think about poverty as a, a family that's homeless or living in a decrepit shack with a hole in the roof not having enough food to eat, maybe not being able to put clothes on your kids' backs. And when you look at the news media, when they run stories about poverty, they almost invariably present you with a homeless family or with a family that that has an empty refrigerator and so forth. And while those families that are in that type of severe hardship do exist, and we have to be very concerned about them, they are a very, very tiny, tiny portion of this 46 million people that are are ostensibly poor. In fact, only 1% of the poor are homeless. Now, what about food? Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture runs a a survey of food consumption and hunger each year. And last year, they asked poor parents, this 46 million group, poor parents, they asked them the following question. At any time during the previous 12 months, were your children ever hungry, even for a single day, because you didn't have enough food in the home or you didn't have enough money for food? You know what? 96% of poor parents said my children were never hungry at all at any point over the twelve month period in the middle of a of this severe, severe recession.
1: Now let me ask you an important question related to all of this because I would imagine for folks that are filling out these surveys, I'd be a little bit hesitant uh, myself, quite frankly Robert, to be uh, all that candid in some of my responses. I mean are there cases where uh, parents are under-reporting their circumstances because they just simply feel embarrassed by it all? I,
3: I don't really think so because the survey asks a lot of other questions besides that, and the survey basically kind of tells us the same thing every year, and then there are other indicators that we'll talk about in the home. For example, um, when you look, we have surveys where you measure the actual food consumption and you compare the nutriment intake of poor children and upper middle class children, there, you can really have to struggle quite a bit to find any difference in the in the intake of vitamins and minerals and protein. And they're all eating the same junk food, rich or poor. Kids still well, have uh, the sweet tooth. The same, <laughs> right, the same food. Uh, we even have surveys that go in and we take blood samples and we look for protein in the blood and and things like that and you don't find that poor people are generally particularly different than anybody else. If you look at, for example, the the consumption of percentage of calories that come from protein, from carbohydrates, from fats, poor people look exactly the same as everybody else we have another set of surveys that ask uh, these poor households what sorts of things they have in the home and what this survey shows us is that eighty percent of poor people have air conditioning two-thirds of them have cable tv seventy five percent of them have an automobile a third of them have two or more automobiles fifty percent of them have a computer in the home forty percent of them have internet access a third of them have a, a widescreen plasma TV, and a quarter of them have a TiVo system. Okay, now that's the sorts of things you're just not going to make up, and and it's very consistent because we, as we look. Even though the government kind of suggests that poor people aren't getting any better, year by year as we do that survey, the, the the amount of things that the poor people have in their home goes up. Largely as the cost of those commodities go down.
1: I, I guess a lot of this then ultimately is very relative to what our point of reference is, and I want to talk about that when we come back. You know, as I mentioned earlier, look, if you're Warren Buffett and your net worth suddenly plummets from you know the billions of dollars that you're kicking around with every day to just $10 million, in the bank account, to you, that's probably poverty. Uh, to me, that's retirement. So is it relative, and to what degree, then, do we adequately define what poverty means? And can it really be true that the poverty situation is worse in the United States than any other so-called developed nation? Really? Or are we just living under a big illusion here? Delusion might be the better word. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. A timeout. Back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right. Welcome back to the conversation. Robert Rectors with a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Now, Robert, as we define poverty, how much of this is all relative? I asked that question. We had a listener call in a moment ago, didn't want to be on the air, but said, you know, I consider myself at the poverty level and I don't have all those things. I don't have a widescreen TV set. I don't have broadband Internet access at home. How can we say that people who are defined as under the poverty level in America have all those things? I don't.
3: Well, the fact is, when you ask the public, Rasmussen just did a poll a few weeks ago, and he asked a very simple question. He said, look, if a person has adequate food for their family and has a reasonable place, apartment or home to live in that's in reasonable condition, would you consider that person to be poor? And by a ratio of about six to one, people said, no, that individual isn't poor. And and the reality is, by that standard, having a, a decent place to live in, having a sufficient nutritious food for your family, about four out of f- five poor people are simply not poor in any sense and then they have then you got to throw the the plasma TV and the computers and all of that on top of that. Um, the reality is that most people in the United States when they hear the word poverty are not thinking about relative poverty. they're thinking about, The images that they see on TV, which are conventionally uh, homeless families, people living in an overcrowded trailer with the roof leaking, they're always images of rather significant deprivation. And trust me, now I realize that there are families like that in the United States, um, but the average poor family and the bulk of people that are, are identified as poor don't live anything like that. And they might, might reasonably say, well, how come census is saying that we have 46 million poor people? And the answer is in the way that they count poverty. Census says that a family is poor if it has a cash income over the course of one year uh, below $22,000 a year. However, and here's the catch, when they count income, the entire safety net is excluded. All welfare in the United States is excluded. Food stamps, earned income tax credit, Medicaid, public housing, none of those things are counted. What does that mean? Well, last year... The taxpayers spent $900 billion, close to a trillion dollars, on cash, food, housing, medical care for anti-poverty programs for poor and low-income Americans. When you divide that out, that comes to around $9,000 for each low-income American, none of which is counted by census when they calculate this poverty level. The missing money... Talking about international comparisons, the missing money alone is greater than the gross national product of virtually every nation in the globe.
1: So, again, it really comes down to an issue of of, at what level do we consider or define poverty and and, and what yardstick we're using against it.
3: Indeed. And basically, as I said, you know, look, the typical poor family has air conditioning, cable TV, has a computer in the house. If they've got kids, they've got an Xbox. They have a car. Here's a nice international comparison for you. The average poor American, now half of poor Americans live in standalone single family homes. 40% of them are in p- apartments. Only 10% of them are in, in mobile trailers. But the average dwelling of a poor American is about 40 to 50% larger than the average house or apartment. In England, not of poor English people, but of every English person. It's about 50% larger than the average dwelling in France, in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy. Okay. Of course, more,
1: to, to more the, space the, doesn't the, necessarily mean more opulence, though.
3: It doesn't, but it, it, it's a good, uh, and it, that wouldn't be true in every indicator by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very good indication that, that uh, the poor in the United States are very well housed, I mean extremely well housed, by international standards. Most of these houses and apartments in the U.S. are in good condition. Not all of them, but most of them are. When you have these comparisons about, oh, well, the United States has more poverty than other nations, this, again, is relative. This income standard that is used to judge poverty in the United States is higher than all the other nations, okay? So this is like having a hurdle race out in a track and field meet where the other nations are jumping three-foot hurdles, and the United States is jumping four-foot hurdles. And at the end of the race, the United States comes in a little bit behind, and people say, aha, see, the United States is a poorer hurdler, right? No. <laughs> the judgment, the the, the the test that you put the United States up against was, was higher than the test that other nations have. Plus, that's compounded by the fact that in the United States and the United States alone, we don't We have all of this money in our system to assist poor people, but we don't count that in our statistics for either poverty or for inequality.
1: Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Robert, appreciate you taking some time to kind of bust out the numbers for us and give us a bit more uh, deeper understanding as to exactly how we define folks in America based on uh, the poverty line on Lifeline from KFAX.